For years, Minky Couture has been donating blankets to NICUs across the country. Owner Sandy Henry's grandson was born at 30 weeks, and she placed a mini blanket in her grandson's incubator. We want to help other NICU families with the Heart of Minky program. For every adult-sized blanket purchased, Minky Couture will donate a mini-sized blanket to NICUs across the nation. Thanks to you, we can fulfill our dream to blanket the world. Hello and welcome to the Boys in the Van podcast. I'm Richard Gallagher. I'm Peter Smith and we're back. We're back with a bumper episode. Um, we've got Fred McPherson from, well, currently Spectre, formerly Les Incompetents and Ox Eagle, Lion Man and, well, Rich, what one to come back to because, you know, Fred was great fun to listen to and he had clearly done some research or he's got a very good memory because well, he just told us so much detail and so many fantastic stories from that era, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. He, he really did have that sort of encyclopedic knowledge of the era. Um, you know, one of those, one of our interviewees that we really feel was reflected upon the time in, in a lot of detail. And uh, yeah, he had a lot of great stories um, and he's a top guy as well. People who, who, who know Fred will know that he's a, a really funny guy. Lots of uh, self-deprecation and uh, <laughs> yeah, a really, really enjoyable chat uh, with him about all things um, letting competence and a bit about Ox, Eagle, Lion Man, and of course Spectre as well. Um, but here he is telling us about the, the sort of the riotous end to Les Incompetents. And then we ended up doing an all ages gig um, on the Saturday after, and I think loads of people played Late the Pier, Jamie T, um, Fear of Flying, who became White Lies, I think Video Nasties. Kid Harpoon, all, all the bands, all our friends' bands from the time. We played this last gig that inevitably we'd booked too many bands. And as it went on, um, people were having, we were having to ask people to play shorter and shorter sets because the curfew was coming. And by the time our gig came around, there was about 10 minutes left until the curfew. So we'd had to announce we could only play a couple of songs. We played How It All Went Wrong. And I remember someone just letting off a fire extinguisher in the middle of the crowd. Someone had ripped a urinal off the toilet wall. This was at like Acton Town Hall or something, where I'm sure never let an all-ages gig get booked there again. <laughs> and it ended kind of in the carnage that it begun. Yes, it's quite interesting. So obviously Spectre, they started in 2011. So just, oh, does he really count for this podcast? Maybe not, but it's okay because he was in Listen Competence and obviously Man. So get, good to have him on. And obviously we love Spectre on this podcast as well. But it's interesting that during the pod, Fred says, um, you know, he's having a great time during the noughties in that band, but then it's sort of got frustrated that a lot of acts that he would play with or was mates with like Jamie T, Laura Marlin, Mumford and Sons, you know, it was no longer just a bit of fun for them. They suddenly started getting signed and started doing really well. And he was just, oh no, I've, I've sort of missed the boat a little bit here. What were we going to do? And that's sort of led to the formation of Spectre, didn't it, Rich? And I definitely got that impression that Fred set out with a real conscious decision of how to get Spectre to to, to crack it, to break, and to get those songs on the radio and uh, and to really make a success. And and he absolutely did. They had a, they broke out with that debut album. Uh, that charted really well and um, yeah they were everywhere around that time and they've gone on to great things since as well of course um, but yeah across this podcast he's got some brilliant reflections of the time inspector um, previous bands and the London scene and 
club nights that he was involved in, um, all sorts of brilliant live music stories. Um, one of them included um, an early interaction of, of Mumford and Sons on the same bill as Tinchy Strider. And you know, one of the terms that he, he mentioned on the podcast I really wasn't expecting and, and hadn't heard in a long time was the word Grindy, Pete. Grindy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But so who's, a, who's a classic Grindy act, would you say, Rich? Hmm. Mm. The other one he, he came up with sort of talking about um there's a bit of chat about collaborations and stuff and also he mentioned about him being good mates with you know, Jamie T, Laura Marlin were performing with those guys around that time as well. Um, the Mystery Jets he was in with those out in West London, um way out west, wasn't it? And that was the, the club night. Yeah. And um well, he revealed, <laughs> I don't know if it's a real big revelation or not, but I didn't know it anyway, is that he was doing the uh, contributing to the vocals on Zoo Time. And as I said, that was my ringtone for uni. So every time I hear that, I was hearing Fred McPherson all through my uni years. Yeah, without even knowing. Um, oh, exactly. And yeah, yeah, really, really good, really good to get that little insight. And um, yeah, and another collaboration that really blew our minds. He talked about this pun loving criminals night. and. Uh, we got straight onto YouTube afterwards, didn't we, Pete, to, to track this down? And you mm-hmm. definitely encourage you to as well. Um, as this night, this club club night, with uh, Dev Hines from Test Fire Schools and Lightspeed Champions was involved, um, girls from Ipso Facto, and um, and Alex Turner as well. There's a brilliant video on YouTube of Alex Turner singing Reptilia by the Strokes with, with Dev, and uh, Fred was on vocals for a couple of songs that night as well. And uh, I think he said it was probably the best thing I've ever seen. You know, it was uh, really is a, a a stellar lineup, and uh, yeah, shame we missed that one, Pete. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a, yeah. Before we we just play out Fred in a, in a moment because it's quite a long podcast. We'll get into it in a second. But there is a plea from Fred <laughs> during this around this period, around probably maybe mid noughties He created a mega mix from the car from the documentary that Max Carlish did about Pete Doherty. And uh, he tells us it was very popular on the Libertines forum, but he no longer has any record of it or any vinyl of it or any recording of it. Um, so if you do, please get in touch because uh, Fred, Fred wants it back. And, well, Fred wants it back, and I think we all want to hear it, really. So uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, big time. So yeah, if you do, if you do have it, definitely get in touch with us or get in touch with Fred. Uh, he's desperate to get get a hold of a copy of that. Um, but yeah. As, as, as you can tell, there's loads in this podcast that we really enjoyed hearing about, and uh, now it's your turn. So here he is. Here's Fred McPherson on the Boys in the Band podcast. Right, this week on the Boys in the Band podcast, we're delighted to be joined by Fred McPherson, firstly of Les Incompetents and Ox Eagle Lion Man back in the day, and more latterly of Spectre. Fred, thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you guys doing? Really yeah, good, all good. All good. Good to have you on. Um, looking forward to this chat. Uh, big Spectre fans, so uh, looking forward to getting into that in part two. But um, Fred, first up, we always warm up with a sound check, and the first question is always, whereabouts are you? I am in London, in my girlfriend's house. Um, well, actually, it's technically our house. We've been together long enough that I should probably stop referring to it as her house. <laughs> um, in the basement, in our bedroom. Yeah, that's what part of London are you in? Uh, this is East London, just up towards Hackney Downs. Very nice. Cool. And uh, second up in the sound check, Fred, we always ask what's on your playlist at the moment, who you're listening to in the minute. Um, I'm listening to a few things. There's a band called Famous I really like. 
um, who are on a label called Untitled that also have some other cool acts. This guy called Jerskin Fendrix, um, whose name's kind of a mixture between Foreskin and Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> um, these couple of punk-ish bands, Chubby and the Gang and The Chisel. Um, I like... Who else? This that American band Turnstile, who are kind of hardcore band, but not a huge amount at the moment. I've kind of just normally I would get excited by Drake and Kanye albums, but being a bit disappointed by those. And I think I'm getting to the age where I'm just increasingly disappointed by all music, including my own. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! That's ominous for my next question because I was going to say, <laughs> how are you feeling ahead of the new Spectre album coming out? <laughs> no, I'm feeling good. Um, it's when this is being recorded, it's meant to be it's meant to be out in a couple of weeks. But by the time this will have aired or will air, I think, assuming this is airing later in the week slash next week, we're actually having to delay our album because of the very um, well-known vinyl delays that are going on at the moment, oh, um, wow. which basically all over the world, there's vinyl delays in our manufacturer, one of their two machines the two plants has just gone down, meaning they have to prioritize um, priorities. And I was as shocked as I'm sure all listeners will be to find out that Spectre in 2021 wasn't one of their priorities in terms of... <laughs> um, so the album's going to be put back, which may mean the tour has to go back, but otherwise excited and, and just excited to be playing. I've been jealous of seeing um, the festivals back and people just playing gigs again i don't know if you guys have got a chance to go to any gigs i saw the magic gang a few weeks ago they played a yala um club night in south london and i don't you know it was amazing but i could have probably seen any band it could have been mm. a you know a, a wham tribute band i mean that would have been even better <laughs> okay. i don't think of some bad music it could have been you know chumba wamba and i'd have probably still want to take my shirt off again of course if it was jumbo one but we'd definitely be taking our shirts off but my point being just hearing loud music was good it's kind of there's nothing like a year and a half without gigs to make you want to go to one when you feel like you never need one in your life again suddenly we all realize how you know lucky we are a lot of the time in this country for what's available yeah, definitely. So have you been rehearsing? Have you been sort of getting the guys back together and getting the sound back going again? Yeah, ish. Like we've never been much of a get together for the sake of playing band, which probably anyone who came to our early tours will um, recognise that. Um, but yeah, we're just starting to get back into it now. It's funny being in a band in when you get older in your thirties and stuff, when everyone has different life commitments and jobs, it's kind of, it's like, I now can't think of an example, but a film where they have to get an old, the old gang back together. Mm -hmm. You feel like Sean Connery in the rock or something, <laughs> having to try and every time you swear, you'll never do it again. <laughs> you get dragged back in for one last, uh, you know, heist caper. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good film knowledge there. The Rock classic. Uh, <laughs> so, so let's um, let's head back in time as well. Uh, not not to uh, the history of cinema, but to the history of you, Fred, in, in terms of your music. So Spectre's debut album, Enjoy, Enjoy It While It Last, came out in 2012. But before that, as we mentioned, you were involved in a noughties indie scene 
as uh, a member of Les Incompetents um, and then Ox, Eagle, Lion, Man. So let's start at the beginning. So with Les Incompetents, how did that band uh, all come together and form and, and what was the inspiration behind the band uh, when you were first starting out? I think, you know, the, four, the, the time between me finding out that bands even existed and forming one was very like close indeed i think it, all it took was a couple of copies of nme and even without hearing the music um of any of these bands that i was reading about i knew that this was the the only way um i think you know in the in the 90s my parents had a record collection that just stopped around Lou Reed Transformer, maybe a couple of David Bowie albums. And other than that, we had Beatles tapes in the 90s and a couple of compilations, but they weren't still kind of keeping up with music. So by the time Oasis came around, say I hadn't got into music yet, um, not properly anyway, other than the Beatles back catalogue and, you know, tubular bells or Jean-Michel Jarre or whatever kind of cassettes you'd find lying around in the back of, you know, our parents' generation, late 80s Austin Rovers and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have much of a, a music taste. My brother was into music, but more into like happy hardcore and like and compilations called things like Dance Trance and Magic Plants, one that sticks in my mind. Um, I think the first CD I bought a copy of depressingly was maybe Top Loader after hearing Dancing in the Moonlight on an advert. Um, And I can't say my musical taste has moved much (laughs) on since then. Um, So I think it was, it must've been when the strokes came because that started a chain reaction of, I think they were on the cover of, face magazine when it was still a magazine here and um a uh issues of the enemy i was about to say early issues of the enemy forgetting that this at this point the enemy was 50 years old (laughs) early to me um and the strokes was one of those things where i just heard about it from different angles at the same time i had a a cousin older cousin who's into uk garage who i thought was really cool who ended up um, actually managing Les Inc for a bit but him my friend at school who ended up being the guitarist they both told me about the strokes and I think before I'd heard a song I was just looking at pictures of them um, maybe even that that fold out that came with the first album and just looking from picture to picture and being like who the fuck are these guys again I probably I only probably knew of New York in the context of Home Alone 2 lost <laughs> in New York you know it was, it was a fictional place to me and kind of remained fictional for very many years that um, America and all these bands, they seem like cartoons t- t- to me, you know, re- reading and especially enemy at that time was quite tabloidy, quite gossipy. It was about what people were, w- were wearing, who they were dating um, in Craig Nichols from the vines, his case, what he was eating McDonald's. Um, and I was just like, I don't know how it happened, but just reading these articles without hearing much music and, and thinking, wow, this is amazing. People just caring about these people. So I think I was a bit of an attention seeker and had been into doing stuff like theatre and musicals and never been that 
good, never quite be able to hold it down enough to actually act or sing properly to maintain too much of people's attention. But when I saw these all these pictures and read these articles, like what you can look like this, dress like this, sound like what this is describing, and people will think you're cool and you'll be able to hang out with girls or, you know, go in a travel in a splitter van. Seem like the coolest thing in the world. I've I've almost twenty years on. I've I've come to realize it probably isn't the coolest thing in the world, but it is when you're a teenager, or it was anyway. Now there's probably much cooler things like, uh, you know, making ten grand on Twitch <laughs> in a day. But back then that wasn't an option. Um, anyway, long answer to short question. Starting Les Inc was one of those things. I think it was about identity, um, wanting to be something, wanting to be something cooler than what we were. And all it took was saying we were in a band initially, um, telling people we met that we were in a band, um, telling girls we knew that we were in a band. I think of my friend Chris, who I started the band with, he had an acoustic guitar, which had five strings that's not to say you know we were hard done by and couldn't afford a guitar with six strings we probably just literally couldn't didn't know how to change a string at that point and we would go to house parties with the guitar which looking back is the most cringe thing now but this was a very very small moment in my life where you could turn up at a house party with an acoustic guitar and not be you know shot on sight um and we would tr- play songs we we the first song we learned was hotel yorba by the white stripes which was a big song for us mainly because we were like wait a second this how can this song that's so good be s- such simple chords that was the, another moment that was like boom, head explodes it's something like c f and g or c d and g it's that simple but can't remember it um and we were just like wait if we, if we can if he wrote this song with these three chords, then surely if we use the same chords and write a song, it will be equally as good. It, you know, suffice to say it wasn't, or at least for the next few years, but from about 14, 15, we would just going around trying to learn other people's songs. I think we tried to learn like choral songs. It was when they were coming out and those proved a bit too difficult for us because they could really play their instruments. Um, but something about the White Stripes and these bands and some of the bands that were happening in London or even older bands. I remember you used to go and watch stuff like the Buff Medways, which was Billy Childish's band at the time. He had a residency in in North London and played once a month. And that was another kind of three chords band. And at some point amongst all this, my parents got Sky or Cable for the first time. It was either it was Virgin or whatever became Virgin, maybe BT. Um, and that was the first time I had MTV2 in the house. And that was kind of the perfect storm. I would come home and just watch MTV2 and taking a break for neighbors and then coming back <laughs> in with Gonzo with Zane Lowe yeah. and just watching all these videos. And there was a lot of crap as well because this was still kind of, this was still the tail end of new metal as well. And there was a funny thing that in school, 
you kind of were listening to you either listen to hip hop and rap or you listen all alternative was under one umbrella as i'm sure you can remember there would be people who would have green day written on their bag and limb biscuit but those would be the same people who were getting excited about the strokes or <laughs> the vines or the white stripes or, or muse or whatever there wasn't much analysis about the different types of music it was really broad brushstrokes then it was like if it had a guitar it was guitar music even though stuff like Limbiscuit or or elements of that music probably sounded more like rap or whatever but i'm i'm very thankful that i wasn't quite into music at that point or i'm sure i would have a far more embarrassing skeleton in my closet than top loader <laughs> but you know dancing in the moonlight hotel yorba and whatever stroke songs we could get hold of this was the the days of cd burning buying cds discman just before mini disc but it sounds mad now like i'm sure you two can remember and listeners will it was quite it felt quite hard to get hold of music sometimes new cds were like 13.99 um on hmv or more 14.99 and navigating the early days of the internet and mp3s when it was napster and limewire it wasn't it was before it got super easy people say oh i downloaded every album i wanted but you still you know you try and download a Jackson's album and accidentally end up with a load of dodgy porn or something um it was it was different we wouldn't we had things like this the cds that came with nme and we'd have to listen to them in that order unless someone's going up to cd player and skipping a track which will sound funny to our parents generation because obviously with vinyl they saw cd as such a quick digital thing but looking back on that now that seems so archaic anyway um les inc yeah basically the the, the lying about being in a band or vis- the fantasy of being in a band eventually we started going to gigs and telling people who ran the gigs that we were in a band and that we wanted to play a gig until eventually they kind of called our bluff and we had to start being like fuck with playing a gig and we probably played our early gigs with almost we booked our early gigs with almost no material a couple of songs covers which looking back i cringe at the idea of you know someone paying to see a headliner and the support bands playing covers although i wish people did it more an early specter gig we played um a cover of kings of leon's the bucket just to see how it would go down and i remember our booking agent saying to us after never do that again <laughs> I wish we just kept going with it because it people the whole audience like stopped they're appalled by it this is when kings of leon had stopped being cool but you know going back to 2003 2004 these were the type of bands that we would queue up in hmv to um get signed copies of cds or the seven inches or um copies of nme and yeah so it's it started from playing gigs like that there was a venue called the rhythm factory where there were lots of, um, we'd heard of it because Libertines and Baby Shambles had done secret gigs there. We basically annoyed the people there. They said we could, they needed a demo if we wanted a gig. So we had to write a song to put on a demo, record it on four track tape, 
because again we had no understanding of recording music and i don't think you know then back then to run logic on a computer god this is making me feel really old in my mind this is only like a couple of weeks ago but now i'm realizing we literally couldn't even record music without a tape four track tape cassette we had to we made a, an absolutely terrible um demo and i told the story on your enemy podcast i won't say their names um <laughs> and uh we brought this tape around to the the rhythm factory which i'm sure was unlistenable and said there's your demo you know we thought we'd done it we thought that was our music career complete and they said okay we'll listen to it and get back to you i think even they didn't have a tape player and then we kept calling them and they said we they said sorry i haven't listened to it I haven't listened to it and a couple of weeks later they eventually like look guys we're so sorry we've lost the tape but we feel so bad we're going to give you a gig and uh we'll put you on first on on this bill that i think martha wainwright was headlining which look at the time i didn't care about at all but looking back i'm like wow that's not a bad first gig and it was one of those a lot of gigs in the, in london but i'm sure regionally as well at the time because there was so much on what almost had a bit of a pay to play vibe so they were like okay it's five pounds a ticket um four pounds with a flyer will if you if you write your name down on your flyers for every four pounds we get with that flyer we'll give you one pound so we were like okay this we can make some serious money here if we get all our family all our friends everyone to come down we're gonna make like 40 pounds bear in mind there was six of us um two lead singers um but obviously our first gig we'd we'd managed to just get absolutely everyone we'd ever met to come to this gig to try and get the one pound of each one they were happy because they had a full room even though most of the room were probably teenagers it was at a time where you weren't getting id'd so much you'd occasionally get id'd at the bar at bars but id on the doors then of, of venues was quite lax so then it was like you know i'm sure we sounded terrible I, I remember we had to use um obviously didn't know about bringing amps or bringing your own drum kit borrowed all the equipment off the other bands we, none of us had any guitar pedals so we got really excited about the guitar pedals and i think our guitarist at the time mistook a tuning pedal for a distortion pedal so every time he was like going in for a guitar solo or whatever would slam down on the tuning pedal thinking oh this is gonna really rip now and it would just go silent you know really terrible sort of stuff i think we broke the snare skin of someone's snare which is really quite hard to do unless you really don't know what you're doing but that's that's testament to how the band came about we, we were people who wanted to be on stage more than we wanted to do the work to get on stage which probably sounds quite entitled looking back but luckily there was enough gigs on at that point that pretty much if you had a guitar you could get a gig somewhere yeah but you soon built up a bit of a buzz about the band didn't you because I, I read that how it all went wrong the second single sold out in a day um i'm not sure how many copies you actually made but it, it there was a demand for the band then and i know you played you mentioned probably about playing. five <laughs> yeah it's a different story, isn't it? Depending on how many you actually made of that. But the I think there was like a thousand or something. Maybe. Yeah, it was a decent number. I seem to remember reading yeah. it. Was a decent number. Yeah. Um, 
you mentioned sort of Riven Factory there, obviously out in East London, but I know you uh, played out out in West London as well quite a bit. And you know, me and Rich were sort of big fans of a lot of the bands that came out of that that sort of area of London: Mystery Jets, Larrick and Love, Jamie T. What was your sort of memories of of that sort of area, or playing those sort of club nights and and gigs out that way? Yeah, so we were lucky that you know we started by trying to jump on a bit of that East London scene because that was a time where everyone was quite libertines mad, but we were lucky through a couple of bands, first one called Ludes, and then through their manager and a gig of theirs. I'd heard of the mystery, basically saw the mystery jets at an early gig before they were signed. And that was a, a game changing moment because again, it, we were a band who didn't know what we were doing and sounded terrible. They were a band who looked like they didn't know what they were doing but sounded amazing you know i remember he was blaine was just banging things on stage the dad was up there i remember seeing a gig with them in the pipettes maybe and he had this painting and he was hitting the painting with a drumstick and he was, then he started just hitting smashing the painting over his head really quite like visceral stuff and his head just split through the painting that was the kind of stuff I like to see. Like I remember early Les Inc. gigs inspired by stuff like that. I'd go, we'd go to Oxfam before the gig and see what there was to bring on stage with us. And there'd be stuff like a children's bull pool and and balls and uh, and golf club. So we'd like blow up um, a, a paddling pool, fill it with these balls. And our Fred would come on stage just like golfing these balls into the audience, which again, now you'd probably get asked to leave, but <laughs> it was a lawless time in the London indie scene and through mystery jets and basically following round, them round as a fanboy, I found out there was a load of stuff going on in West London. That's where I was from and where my parents were from. And I didn't know that there was this whole world down there. So we played on Eel Pie Island with mystery jets. They did these gigs that were called, called the white cross revival the, the night and it was something I think it was a reference to the hotel gigs that had happened on Eel Pie Island in the 60s and 70s with the Rolling Stones or whatever I think the dad lived on Eel Pie Island so they put these gigs on in their house which again was probably maybe a nod to like all the Pete Doherty house gigs but again it was a time where people were letting people into their homes for gigs and just thinking that would be fine um, and so we played one, I don't know who was playing when we played, maybe like Noisettes, um, I remember going to uh, Larrick and Love, Jamie T. So that's when I started to meet people like that, Jeremy Wormsley, Emmy the Great, um, Holloway's probably. And that was, that just opened my eyes again, even then, because there'd been the whole um, Libertines Baby Shambles, Paddington's, others thing, which I've been a big fan of, but felt like, always felt like that was, we were slightly on the outside of something that was already happening or, or already happened. Whereas this felt like getting on at the ground floor. I remember hearing up from them about, you know, when they were starting talking to record labels like Transgressive, who released the first uh, single Zoo Time. And actually they got a load of people down to the studio and I went down to record the vocal that went zoo time, zoo time, zoo time. So that was fun. Just even that was probably one of the first times I've been in a recording studio. Um, 
That was once my um, my ringtone on my phone when I was at uni. Sue well, there you go. Yeah. So I was a voice on your ringtone at uni. <laughs> and I'd made like a homemade Zoo Time t-shirt with Tipex and they ended up like scanning that in and using it as a, t- as a t-shirt. But they were nice enough to put us on gigs. And, and then also, not through that, but alongside that, we met a guy called Keith who used to put on these all-ages gigs um at a club night called way out west and that was at the stripes bar which was in brentford football club and was on the corner um and that uh, of, of brentford football club and that was kind of the first time we actually played gigs and people it felt like people knew who we were i think looking back it's because the the average age in the audience went down from about 19 to 14 and at that point they're going to be excited about anything loud happening on stage <laughs> but that was the point where we started to be like wow this is a real this is maybe a real thing i remember i bought an, a cap a myspace cap from the official myspace shop at the time and during the gig it had been taken off my head and i lost it and i just i was like equal really upset having lost this cat but also like wowed that this type of thing could have happened at our gig and there are people like getting on stage and again you know the first time I saw saw someone like Jamie T I was just like wow we do not understand songwriting at all I, I think I hadn't even grasped songs and also it probably wasn't helpful that listening to bands like the libertines their song structures are a bit all over the place it's not actually great music to be listening to when you're trying to write music i realize now we didn't understand the concept of verse chorus verse chorus you know middle eight chorus which is ironic because the other singer in our band and yeah there were two singers which is probably never that much of a good idea when either play instruments his dad had been a songwriter in the 90s and had co-wrote Would I Lie to You Baby by Charles and Eddie so we should have known much more about songwriting if I was the dad Billy's dad I'd have stepped in and been like okay here's the basics <laughs> if someone wrote Would I Lie to You you'd think they'd be trying to share that that love with the next gen but um, we put out our first single called Reunion Much Too Much through the label White Heat, which was the club night, club night central London. So we've had East London, West London, central London, which at that time was, you know, my whole, my universe. I was like, wow. I remember the first time I went to Dalston or Whitechapel and I was like, this is an hour away. This is the ends of the earth. Um, And then going far west to Brentford or Eel Pie, which is in Richmond. But in central London, there was five to 10 maybe even 15, 20 venues, most of which are all closed down now. But the original location of White Heat was on Old Burlington Street, um, which is just the next one, Tiny Street, the next one along from Savile Row. And it had been where um, Apple Records, where the Beatles had played their last gig, was on that street. But I think that's now in Abercrombie & Fitch. This is before it was in Abercrombie & Fitch and when you could still get away with running a 3 a.m. licensed indie venue with two pound beers um, in literally the middle of one of the biggest cities in the world. So again, we started going there when we were 15, 16, 
and no trouble getting in. If you needed, if you, if anyone asked for ID, you just focused, copied your passport, changed one of the numbers, and you could get in. So you know there were people saying they were born in 1884. You know, never mind 1984. No one gave it uh, gave a shit. You could get in anywhere. You could drink anywhere. Um, and again, we just we started annoying the guy Matty. Um, who ran that club night to get us a gig until we eventually got a gig. I remember it was supporting a band who was supporting Interpol that night. So they would, it was their headline gig after the Interpol gig. And we were thinking, we would, had this whole fantasy that was like, wait, if they're supporting Interpol, then, you know, Interpol will probably end up coming down to the gig. We had no idea <laughs> the whole would be taking place whilst Paul were on stage and they'd have no interest in coming. And suffice to say, we went on first at about 7.45 and played to the bar staff and the promoter. But Matty, to his credit, who ran that club night, and they were they ended up releasing quite a lot of cool stuff like um, Kamenichi and Forward Russia and The Rotters, which was Faris from the Horrors first band that he played drums and Neil's Children. Um he anyway the guy who ran the venue was really the rent ran the night was really kind to us and was like wow that w-, he was like that was terrible but it was amazing we need to release a single and we would i think we were like you know what's a what's a single almost we'd never been to a recording studio and he was kind enough to this is probably a time where you could make money out running a le- weekly indie night on a tuesday night so he was probably making money hand over fist from all the fivers on the door and ended up using it wrongly or rightly to then pay for bands who recorded there to make seven inches. So we did our first one reunion much too much in 2005, which I think was the year or the year before we left school. And I remember, I think we played a gig the night before seven, seven. Was that that year? 2005. Yeah. Um, and my mum called me the next day being like crying and being like oh my god are you, are you okay and I'm like yeah don't worry the gig was amazing <laughs> she was like no there's been a bomb on the underground and I remember being a bit disappointed that the terrorist has stolen the thunder of our seven inch release <laughs> um, but maybe that was more of an act of terrorism contained on the, that record um, but yeah, and then it was kind of it was a bit of a cottage industry because you'd get these nights like Young and Lost or Way Out West or um, White Heat, and they would release bands that played at the club nights, and then they would play the records of those bands at the club nights. Obviously, in a pre Shazam era, I remember having to go up to the the dj booth with a biro asking the the djs what they were playing there was a night um where the, the dj from white heat the other one ollie dj'd on a saturday night called after school and that was i had a lot of formative indie memories there probably the first time hearing a lot of things like block party or whatever the banquet remix and having a go and like scream the dj like what is this what is this i need to know like writing it down with a black biro and an all black flyer and then the next day trying to make it out or going to rough trade to ask what it was 
that was that night. I remember a friend of ours. There's a mythic story that a girl we knew had taken a chihuahua to the club night in a in a handbag, and the DJ had dropped um, "House of Jealous Lovers" by the Rapture. It kicked off, and the dog had a heart attack, and she tried to get it out, but it it died before it got to the breakdown of the song. Sadly, um, <laughs> hopefully she's not listening. Uh, I don't know if it was House of Jealous Lovers. It might have been Circle Square Triangle um, by Test Icicles. But again, at these going to these venues, I would I would meet people in bands. So I think um, I'd heard Test Icicles on MySpace maybe, and saw them in White Heat in the basement, and just gone up to them and like you know fanning out to bands who didn't even have record deals who were just putting demos on myspace but looked amazing and asking them where they got their clothes from and what their songs were about um it, kind of the, the naivety of of youth in a, in a nice way where being a we didn't have concepts of being an artist there was just lots of fans everyone was fans i remember we asked Jamie T if he'd come on stage with us as Les Inc and do a song. He was like, yeah, which one of your songs do you want to do? And we were like, no, we want to do one of your songs. And he was like, okay. I think we did his early song, Alicia Keys. And it was the first time he'd played with a band. But again, like the audacity of asking an artist to come and guest to do one of their songs. And it, it was just that a good period where lots of stuff merged into each other. Well, there, there was this songwriter, Kid Harpoon, who's now a big pop writer. Um, and he would be a good person to get on, actually, if you could tempt him out of this cave in L.A. But he was one where he did this cover of First We Take Manhattan by, um, what's he called? Leonard Kine. Um And we saw him play this cover and we were like, you've got to record that. And he's like, yeah, and we end up inviting him to the studio while we were meant to be recording our single, getting him to record this cover and then putting it on our MySpace just because we thought it was so good. Again, stuff that doesn't really make sense looking back. But it was a nice fluid time. And again, meeting people from like the website Drowned in Sound, which was a big deal at the time, kind of like the you, you almost, I guess, like the UK equivalent to Pitchfork. And they ended up doing work experience there doing the demos and going through their bag of demos for work experience and just getting excited because they're you know the Maccabees will have sent in a CDR mm-hmm. and getting to keep the CDR with early versions of whatever the songs. So again, I'm sorry, I'm not I'm just answering giving too long answers without getting into the uh, any more questions. No, that's perfect. Brilliant insight into the time. I think you've captured it uh, amazing there, Freddie. It was, like I say, really fluid time, really exciting. Um, I suppose just to take it back to, to the bands, you know, it sounded like you were you know, having such a, a great time in that band in, in those mid-noughties, but it wasn't, it, it didn't last uh, too long after that. So the band called Time in 2006. So um, what was, what, what caused that, that, that decision? Yeah, I think it was one of those things that we'd never quite like crystallized the band it the things that made it exciting we didn't understand at the time were probably our complete were our lack of understanding around songwriting and rehearsing and remembering songs we'd often 
kind of jam the songs live and then just sing different bits without it was only by the end that we'd really learned how to play all the songs and actually had our first proper song with a proper structure, which is how it all went wrong, which I recently managed to get back on Spotify. Um, and that I think came about from hearing stuff like Razorlight and our guitarist, Sean, who I saw our next band with was kind of just like, okay, I'm going to try and write a song like this. And he pulled it off to his credit and I still love that song. And that was that was the point where it's just like it all crystallized into one song that did represent what we were trying to do, but we didn't have ten amazing songs in the wings. We didn't have an album's worth material. We didn't all get along that well. I was probably very annoying and arrogant at the time, being. 17 18 and going to club nights and being in a band that you thought was cool i'm sure i wasn't the only annoying arrogant person in the band or in the scene you know that was the currency i guess at the time and um we went on tour with vincent vincent and the villains headlining we were in the middle and mr hudson was and the library was on first he would obviously go on to make songs with kanye west etc but I'm sure he remembers his tour with Les Incompetents <laughs> as a career highlight. Um, that, I think, was our first and last tour. We, sh- we shouldn't have been allowed on tour. We kind of all terrorised each other, doing things like when someone fell asleep at the travel lodge, put, pouring all the coffee sachets into their shoes or their socks, and then in the morning they'd put on their socks filled with instant coffee, like really kind of kid stuff teenage stuff um i didn't drink at the time but i think somehow that made me more of a cretin um because my excitement wasn't dulled down i think we were all just really mean to each other um and we didn't have a we didn't have a plan we'd wanted to we'd we'd started the band to to have a to get a gig then we'd done a single we'd done a better single and also we'd been to lots of we got excited by record labels like transgressive and this labeled young and lost club and these other labels were signing lots of indie bands and we had lots of meetings with labels or a&rs came to gigs and they're all like wow we love it that was amazing we're like do you want to sign it and they're like god no it was (laughs) we weren't very signable we didn't have many songs and our best song we released um and you know, half the people I think didn't want to make music and half the people didn't want to make music with each other. Um, and after this tour, we were planning on announcing our breakup and then our other singer, Billy, got involved. Well, no, was attacked um, after an argument on a night bus, was kind of really horrifically hit and fell back and hit his head and ended up in hospital in a coma. So, which added another phase to it because we would had been planning on breaking up that summer when the single came out and actually we knew when we called it how it all went wrong that it was kind of the end anyway but in the time he was in the coma the song started to do really well it was getting daytime play on xfm and getting played in suddenly in all the indie clubs and you know you'd have club enemy was suddenly a franchise across the uk we'd go places like club enemy nottingham or whatever and everyone would know the song we'd be like wow how do these people know the song not knowing that they'd literally been posted it on cdr to play in the cdjs um but it meant that 
was this funny thing that by the time he came out of the coma and we announced the breakup of the band in between our last gig and that we'd we had become the biggest we'd ever been but it was in like this non-time band and that was even more bizarre because then we announced our last gig um and it was at the hundred club and suddenly we'd were selling out the hundred club which had been a dream but it was it was our last because it was our last gig um and so we did that and then we ended up doing an all ages gig um on the saturday after and i think loads of people played late the pier jamie t um fear of flying who became white lies i think video nasties kid harpoon all, all the bands all our friends bands from the time we played this last gig that inevitably we'd booked too many bands and as it went on um People have we haven't asked people to play shorter and shorter sets because the curfew was coming. And by the time our gig came around, there was about 10 minutes left until the curfew. So we'd had to announce we could only play a couple of songs. We played How It All Went Wrong. And I remember someone just letting off a fire extinguisher in the middle of the crowd. Someone had ripped a urinal off the toilet wall. This was at like Acton Town Hall or something, where I'm sure never let an all ages gig get booked there again. And it ended kind of in the carnage that it began with a guy who hadn't been long out of a coma and five other idiots, most of whom hated each other and themselves, like mincing their way through a terrible rendition of their own body material. Uh, it's funny you mentioned about sort of Billy because I can clearly remember that story being covered in the in the press and uh, not maybe not even just the music press. I seem to remember it getting wider attention than that. But you see, no, after- was, the Evening Standard and stuff, and I yeah. remember him being hospital and wanting to tell him like, "Mate, you're famous, <laughs> loved it." But yeah. it was such a terrible thing to yeah, terrible yeah. circumstances. Not how he imagined. Um, we mentioned at the top as well. You went on to Octagon Line Man before Spectre, so. Just tell us a little bit about that project and, and what you maybe learned from those two bands that you then took into Spectre. Well, it was funny with, with it, Oxygen Line Man was kind of an, another side of the coin. It was me and Sean, the guitarist, and um, Tommy, who'd play bass in the, in the latter era of Les Inc., started that band. Um, and the original drummer was this guy, Toby O'Candy, who was also in a band called Bono Must Die. He was the singer of that band, um, and you know, Lesing had been a band that gigged more than we rehearsed and never th- thought things through much, and everyone really enjoyed. Look, Seagull Line Man was a band that rehearsed more than we played live, really thought through everything, and no one particularly enjoyed. It was kind of, um, for some reason, I don't know how or why this happened, we got into prog rock at some point, and not like cool prog rock like bad prog rock like emerson lake and palmer um and we we decided that because it wasn't because no one was referencing prog rock that would be like a cool thing to reference but this was at a time when you know then stuff like klaxons was coming out and the horrors and people were going to gigs and really having a lot of fun and we were making quite like noodly drawn out quite self-important music um but we were we would we got lucky as well transgressive who'd been one of the labels that turned us down with les inc then were 
decided to they wanted to sign Ox Eagle, and they they said one of their biggest regrets was not releasing how it all went wrong by Les Inc. And I don't know if they were just signed us to make up for it but you know they were really into our music and to this day they always say like when are we doing the double vinyl release <laughs> um even though they've got far bigger fish to fry like Arlo parks and bowls or whatever um but they would you know we had a few fans who really loved us and you know a couple of those were in the band and a couple of those were the record label um and Again, it was quite a, a bleak, difficult songwriting without the fun bits. So, um, and maybe there's some people who out there who loved it. I remember actually meeting when I first met Palmer Violets in 2013. They were like, Spectre is terrible, but Oxygen Line <laughs> Man was genius. We listened to that throughout all our teenage years. So, you know, at the very least, <laughs> we can say that uh, you know, someone was listening out there. Um, but that was, it was fun. We got to work with uh, Gordon Raphael, who produced the first Strokes album. And that was a dream moment to go in with him. You know, I spent three days probably just asking questions about the Strokes. But um, we did, we got a lot of the things that Les Inc. had never got, like... Um, getting to release and record more music, going on more tours, um, playing in more places, playing in France or whatever. And we toured with bands that I'd loved growing up, like the Polyphonic Spree we'd supported. Again, not sure how that came to pass or if anyone going to see them was enjoying us. But it was, it was good fun, but it wasn't... It didn't have the same joy. I think at the end of Les Inc, we'd all the the all ages stuff and kids running on stage and all the craziness. We'd kind of felt like it didn't. I don't know something about it didn't feel. We never loved that, and so I think we went away. And our reaction to that was making some quite difficult gothy music. I think we, me and Sean went through a goth phase probably got into Nick Cave at the end of Les Inc. Um, not realizing that people really like Nick Cave because he has also has great songs with great choruses, as well as all the dark kind of performance stuff. But I got really into lyrics and I think it's good. I got a lot of, um, it was like, that's when we got a lot of our team, even though we were in our early twenties by that point, got a lot of teenage songwriting out of our system. A lot of like, don't look at me. The world <laughs> is so dark. Um, there was a lot of that, a lot of talk about God and kind of sea monsters and fantasy. And we were listening to doom metal, like sun and earth and stuff. And we toured with an Australian band called The Scare. And we were like, wow, this is, yeah, we want to be this like dark punk metal prog. I mean, you're maybe in a different decade in Spain or, you know, Ukraine. This could have been a popular band, but um, I don't... It's one band that people I often read people say, oh, Les Inc., legendary band, or how it went wrong, still talking about it now. I very rarely have anyone 
talk to me about Oxygolion Man, which either means it was incredibly before its time or more likely incredibly after its time. But through that band, um, I'd, I'd met guys who worked at MTV2. I think we did an interview, either as Oxygol, maybe Les Inc. And Toby, who worked at Transgressive, had been done a bit of presenting on MTV2. And I kind of met some of those guys and started to do a bit of presenting with MTV. So MTV2 and kind of Gonzo doing out-of-studio broadcasts at festivals like Oxygen and um, Better Kasim. And it was funny. So kind of by night, I was playing in this very like oblique, um, sad prog band, but by day interviewing the biggest bands of the time. Um, you know, Interpol, Kings of Leon, the Kooks. And, you know, that was coming into 20, 2008, 2009. And I think, I, again, Oxygel, I don't know how many years it was. We did a single and two EPs. Probably, again, only like three years altogether. Three, four years, which at the time, you know, you feel like is life itself. Mm -hmm. um, but through working at MTV and just seeing getting to see big festival shows, even by artists who I probably didn't like that much. But um, I think I reconnected with the, I, I like saw people being popular. And also simultaneously, a lot of the bands that we'd grown up with around the end of Les Inc got signed and went on to be really big. So Jamie T, Laura Marling, Mumford and Sons. There were bands that we'd um, grown up with um, and suddenly they were doing really well late the pier even. And that was kind of a like, fuck, how did we, that was at this point where everyone was getting signed and everyone had a song people knew. And we kind of had somehow managed to miss that train. Also at the same time, incongruously, I was in a kind of comedy rap group um, with my cousin, Henry, who had been the manager of Les Inc, who, um, went on to play Donovan in The Inbetweeners, The Bully. Oh, yeah. um, he's an actor. So it was with him and Charlie from Nar in the Whale and this the other musician, King Charles. So they'd all known each other. And somehow we ended up in this country rap band, which, um, again, thank God, there's no recorded material. <laughs> but I was, didn't hear that one. <laughs> yeah, that was like a MySpace thing but we played quite weird gigs with people like jme and and um that was our kind of contribution to the new rave universe but again didn't really sit alongside oxygen line man and probably didn't it's really hard for people to take us seriously when i was going on um as the quote unquote dj behind my cousin in like a gold lame hoodie or whatever um but that was a funny sideline and again, that was kind of, there was a big all ages scene at the time. And in the era of New Rave, we probably played with those, with bands like Hadouken and stuff. There was that crossover, a bit of a, a unpalatable crossover of like um, rap, indie, grime. There was this thing that was called Grindy for a second. And if, if you look up Rewind Magazine, Grindy, there's a picture of Larrick in Love and this producer static um with a k 
who at the time had made this Grindy mixtape called Grindy Volume One. You know, these things shouldn't have happened. They're crimes, <laughs> cultural crimes. Um, but they were testament to just how big indie was at the time. I remember there was the, one of the first Lethal Bizzle singles that had a Test Icicles remix as the B-side. And I remember being really excited by that and buying the Lethal Bizzle single to see, to hear the Test Icicles remix. And then at the same time, we'd go and watch Test Icicles supporting something like Alkaline Trio at uh, Brixton. Again, like this weird crossover where, you know, Grime went on to be it's a, a huge commercial thing, but then beyond Dizzy Rascal and Wiley to a certain extent, it wasn't there were lots of artists who weren't massively commercially successful. I remember there was a venue called um, Tatty Bogles in central London, just off Kingley Court. It was a members only club, but no one had to be a member that had two pound or one pound beers. And I put on a club night there, which was to celebrate, I think, when the Les Inks single sold out. And we had this early version of a band that kind of became Mumford & Sons called Captain Kick and the Cowboy Ramblers um, that also had Charlie from Knowing the Whale in. And then we had Tinchy Strider as the headliner. <laughs> and, you know, that seemed like a logical thing. It was Tinchy Strider and all of Rough Squad, who I think we played, paid like 50 pounds in cash and a proto Mumford band who we paid nothing. But at the time that seemed completely normal. That was kind of the way things were. There was a big appetite for nightlife with live music you would often have nights at fabric that also had live acts or indie nights that would then go on for four hours after with you know electro djs or whatever playing so that was when i'd first grown up with bands and les inc that was slightly before that this point it all changed i remember there was a vice festival called tales of the jackalope that they put on this festival that they'd described at the time as like it's going to be in a beautiful manor house where the rules are there are no rules and with this crazy lineup of like klaxons horrors like every band from the time um and obviously everyone got there and it was in a couple of it was in like a corner of a muddy field and the manor house had fallen through but that was the time again i, I didn't i didn't drink or do drugs i was i was sober up until i was 23 24 so at that point i probably didn't realize when people were on pills i didn't understand that that was why they were acting the way they were acting so i would go to these things and just assume that the you know the music i knew people were doing drugs and getting drunk but i've kind of was naively under the impression that music was whipping people up into these <laughs> kind of borderline psychotic um, states but somehow during all this alongside presenting MTV seeing all this super popular music around London and like Claxon's winning Mercury Prize or whatever all these bands I was probably getting increasingly jealous of um, Test Icicles had broken up and I was friends with Dev he became Lightspeed Champion at that point and I remember he got on the cover of NME and I, I think at that point I was kind of really not embittered but more like okay this is this there's something more there's something more to this we put a night on when dev's first album was like to be champion came out falling under the falling off the lavender bridge i think it was called yeah, yeah. 
we put a night on at White Heat. We, we put a band together called the Pun Loving Criminals to play indie covers. And it was him on guitar. I sang um, Get Free and The Rat, Get Free by the Vines of Walkman, The Rat. It was Victoria, who's from a band called Ipso Facto, who's on drums. She later played for Jamie T and she's late, just announced she's playing for ABBA in the ABBA Voyager, Voyage gigs next year. Um, she was on drums. I think another girl, Sam from the band Ipso Facto, was on bass. One of the rascals, Miles Kane's old band, I think, was on bass for one song. And then Alex Turner came on to <laughs> sing Reptilia with Dev at the end of it. And if you search um, Pun Loving Criminals, White Heat, I think you can see that footage on YouTube because that was, I mean, that was probably the best thing I've ever seen. Alex Turner performing Reptilia. That was a, a, a point where indie and it's kind of the stuff that came out of it, New Rave or whatever, was a very cultural force. Um, and I think that inspired me to want to start a band to try and kind of get on that that level try and compete in the universe of kind of indie as a commercial cultural prospect or whatever oh which also brings us up to spectre which we'll talk about in part two so stick with us i'm fred mcpherson from spectre and les incompetents and you're listening to the boys in the band You're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. For more naughty nostalgia, check... Trying to grab all the groceries in one trip? Oof, not how you would have done that. You know sometimes less is more. Like when you drive less and save with the USAA annual mileage discount. USAA. Get a quote today. Check out our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages and make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast for more interviews like this. Welcome back to the Boys and Band podcast, where we're with Fred McPherson from Spectre, and previously, as we just heard, Les Incompetents and Ox Eagle Lion Man. Uh, let's get into the Spectre story then, Fred, because um, by 2011, well, you finished the part one by saying that you wanted to get into this sort of mainstream indie world, really, with your your next project, which was Spectre, mm-hmm. and you know, quite quickly built up a real head of steam, didn't you? I guess you've got experience to call on from those previous bands, but I felt like there was a real sort of anticipation about Spectre. Um, I think you got the sounds of 2012, didn't you, by the BBC in sort of mm. late December 2011, which is obviously a huge accolade for a, a new band to have. Um, what was it like having that momentum and what, sort of, where did that all come from, really? Well, it was exciting. Um, I think, you know, I was just getting sick of seeing friends do so well and probably getting quite jealous and embittered of of thinking ah this is this thing that that initially with les inc we'd almost given up on before it went on to become before that kind of sound of jangly indie became this very commercial thing and bands like the kooks and Razorlight or the maccabees or whatever went on to have literal charting singles which by today's standards is quite mad to think of like top 10 singles um and i think the i was 
having then been in the in a in a music scene by that point for five years, four or five years since my teens, I'd learnt a lot, and I think I'd eventually learnt what songwriting was by understanding what it wasn't. And I think it only takes writing a hundred bad songs before <laughs> they become marginally less bad. Um, and I got quite into kind of pure traditional songwriting in a kind of first chorus, first chorus way. I had realized from Oxygen Lion Man that I think I would think I was singing too low for my voice by trying to sound like Nick Cave or Ian Curtis or whatever. Although I can sing low notes, I think I was generally singing probably a couple of keys too low and hurting my voice. So I was like, oh, I can actually comfortably sing in a higher range. I'm going to try and write some love songs and I'm just going to try and write songs by myself because I'd always written with people. I couldn't play instruments that well and always thought that would stand in the way of songwriting but I didn't realize actually at that time in the the years that I wrote what became most of our first album Spectre that limited musical understanding can be really helpful going back to the White Stripes Hotel Yorba thing suddenly I was like okay well I can write a song that's the, has the chords A, D and E and then write another song with the same chords and no one's going to arrest you you know um they probably should, but <laughs> they didn't. Um, and I just made lots of demos. I'd also had a laptop with Ableton, I think, in the Oxeagle era um, or the New Rave era when there was lots of people making bootlegs and mashups. I'd started using music software. Earlier on, I'd made a remix based on the, this documentary, Stalking Pete Doherty, with presented by Max Carlish, I'd recorded all the audio off the TV and made a kind of cut up to a dance beat of all the ridiculous things that Max Carlish, the present the guy who made the documentary, said. And this is a piece of music that if anyone listening has, please send in. It's called Max Carlish Mega Mix, and I remember it going down well on the Libertines message board at the time. But I don't have any access to laptops. It was on, and I know someone out there will have it because it was for free download on MySpace. So if you've got it, please send it in. But that was my earliest um, experience of mu using music software. So that was Fruity Loops and Acid Pro. You use Acid Pro to cut up audio and then Fruity Loops to arrange it. At some point, I think I heard someone, someone had a bootleg that they'd made themselves um, of something on MySpace. And I asked how they made it. And they said, there's this new music software from Germany called Ableton. Um, you've got to get it it's super easy it's like a toy and to this day i still use ableton well for spectre working with other artists whatever um and it is like a toy it it took me a few months to get used to and then i was like wow i'm i can this is it i can produce music and make songs um although ironically after about a year of making demos on my laptop it wasn't till my laptop went down and my friend said he could lend me uh, his four-track tape recorder. It's a guy, Joe Daniel, who was in a band called The Violets and on Ang ran Angular Records. Um, he'd lent me his four-track tape recorder. And the first and only song I recorded and wrote on the four-track tape recorder was Never Fade Away, which mm. became our first single. And it was one of those fortuitous moments where, although you get lots of analog Puritans who were like, oh, you know, using analog gear is just the real thing. 
I'd got used to writing music with a screen and the, the second my laptop went down, I didn't have a screen. That's the song I made. And, and it, you know, it's one of our simplest songs. It's, it's very few lyrics repeated over a changing chord pattern. But at the time that w- was like a key going in a lock for me of like, no simple. If you can get a feeling on something simple, then that's good. I should have kept that in mind later when we came to record our album and kind of super produced it and threw everything in the kitchen sink. But for a moment, that time of recording demos, there was like a pure musical moment of making something. I think I had a Casio tone organ and a four track and wrote that song never fade away. And through that song, um, managed to build from there. Um, I knew I'd met enough people going to club nights that I, by this point had contacts from all the record labels who'd never shown any interest over the years and think I sent various people never fade away. And a few people were like, yeah, this is a good song. And around the time I knew Justin from the vaccines, he was performing as JJ Pistolet. And I knew Freddie, who was Tom from the Horrors' brother. I'd met him when he was way younger in a band called The Days with the Zed, with Charlie from Uele Swimming Pool, who tragically died later. Um, but I remember being with them somewhere, and they said, we're starting a surf band. And I was like, wow, like the drums. And they're like, but better than the drums. <laughs> Again, head explode moment. That I was like, what, better than the drums? I mean, with all respect to the drums, I think they actually fulfilled that they played me the demo of if you wanna and again that was one of those moments where i was like fuck yeah um this is you know simple is good simple and repetitive and actually i think when they played on jules holland i watched that i don't know if that was 2010 or early 2011 and i was super jealous um again of see of of seeing a friend do well, but I think it was that night where I kind of understood the surf guitar thing and like reverb on chords. And that I was like, I could do something like that. And then I think I wrote Chevy Thunder that night. Mm. Um, And that was based on, at the time, my girlfriend at the time had this jumper that um, said Chevy Thunder on it. And I think this was, I'd started drinking age 23 when I'd broken up with my previous girlfriend and was suddenly cramming in all my teenage years into now kind of 23, 24. And remember I was being sick outside of a a nightclub in Dalston, not far from where I live right now. And she gave me this jumper to, to put on, to kind of warm me up on this like cold night. And I remembered reading it through the like bleary eyed, wearing it hard, had vomit on it and just reading either that night or the next morning, it just said Chevy Thunder, this like branded Chevrolet jumper that they must've given away at um, American car dealerships or whatever. Um, so I, ha- I was like, that's a song title. And through the title from the jumper and seeing the vaccines on Jules Holland and kind of just trying to copy it, I had then had Chevy Thunder and never fade away. And through those two, managed to kind of um get uh put a band together and get a record deal etc but you know this isn't very 
looking back, that's not necessarily the purest songwriting. It's not like I went outside and sat under a tree and was moved <laughs> by something beautiful. There was an air of, of cynicism that probably I was by this point was very cynical about the whole music industry. I felt let down by it. I felt jealous of the people who'd done better. I felt angry at not being as talented as other people. But I was like, if I can just turn this into something, if I can get a record deal and a, and get on TV and play these gigs, then it all all the problems will solve and all the the pieces of the puzzle will fall in together and life will be complete. And again, you know, the day we signed the record deal, I had no plan after that. We had no plan. The, the guys who were in the original lineup of the band, all of which are, who are amazing and some of my best friends ever at the time, me and Chris, who we'd, I'd start the band with, who was actually the original guitar player of Les Inc, who hadn't been in Ox Eagle, but we'd reconnected as a kind of, what if we did a pop band? We, he was helping put the band together. And, you know, we auditioned some people who were really good at their instruments, but if someone came in and they were better looking than the last guy, or we liked their vibe, or they said some shit that made us laugh, we like, that's the guy for the band. We, none of us were musicians. No, or none of us were great musicians. Um, nor did we have the charm of kind of playing instruments in a charming way because most people, most people in the band were playing what wasn't even their main instrument. Um, and Danny, who's, who still kind of plays keyboard for us on and off and was the drummer at the time, he'll be the first to say he wasn't a drummer, but we picked the people that felt right rather than necessarily picking the best musicians. And we ended up having as with that version of the lineup like the best few years um but it was a funny situation because by the time it got round to recording the first album or having all these amazing experiences like going on Jules Holland ourselves in 2011 we were still I'd probably only rehearsed less than 20 times let alone played many gigs so it was it was kind of Whereas something like Les Inc had been shambolic with teenagers with no budget. This was like shambolic with a budget, which is quite a bad combination <laughs> and doesn't necessarily breed the best work ethic. You know, I'd, I'd been used to working hard in bands for no money. And I think where we were foolish is we got given money to for a few years and maybe thought that's where that meant we didn't have to work hard anymore because the job was done. We were like mission accomplished. And I've, you know, I've always been a big fan of people like Malcolm McLaren and the great rock and roll swindle. And I love the music industry, but I also, I hate it. It's there's many revolting elements, even though I've still not managed to leave it in my thirties. But for some reason there were points where I think we almost resented the people who who gave us money and gave us a record deal. I think at points they would agree they almost resented us. There was this kind of standoff of like, well, why should we? Why should we put effort? Why should we make this good? Right? <laughs> so we kind of almost wanted things to be deliberately a bit crap. And I don't know what the point we we're trying to prove was. I think taking the piss a bit. I remember we played we played a gig for Vivo at. Um, the great escape in 2011 or 12. And I remember they had pizzas backstage and I was saying, 
I just said this joke, wouldn't it be funny if I brought the pizza on stage and ate it during the gig? And our manager at the time was being like, you can't bring the pizza on stage. That's the least rock and roll thing ever. And this has been recorded for Vivo. You de- you're not allowed to bring the pizza on stage. So I was like, fuck it, I'm bringing the pizza on stage. Again, for no reason whatsoever, just to wind up our manager who'd quite rightfully told us, if you bring a pizza on stage and eat it during the gig, you're going to look like a fucking idiot. Um, but that was part of the fun. And um, had we not had that attitude in our early rehearsals and our early gigs, we might not have got signed anyway. It was funny that it would just happen to be the tail end of indie music. And I think after the vaccines in 2011, and for the record, they're a really good band who have always been able to really play their instruments, including when they stole one of our drummers, Jan, who's amazing. Um, you know, they can they can play. So or I'm, I'm very happy with their success. But I think that was kind of the, the end of a certain era of indie music by 2011, 2012. You had other, you had other bands coming through, like Palmer Violets obviously had an amazing song um, with Best of Friends. But I think in terms of career bands, the vaccines were one of the last ones. And I think after American bands like Vampire Weekend and MGMT, it all kind of changed and we did a few quite a few of our early tours with Florence and the Machine and it was that era where indie started to cross over into pop I, I thought of Florence and the Machine as an indie act at the time and then obviously she would um had a hit with um you know you got the love and it, it was all crossing over into into a different type of pop more like pop stars who came from an indie background with a lot of great artists who come out of that. Obviously, you know, Lana Del Rey and it was the era where Adele had sold however many billion albums. But I think it was, it was interesting, the era of indie music that this podcast probably covers and that I grew up with that borders on the kind of, not lad rock, but definitely a male heavy dominated scene in terms of who was getting record deals or more attention in the press because that's not to say there weren't lots more amazing and diverse acts in the underground it was kind of a funny time where just at the by the point we had got to the party it was starting to be over kind of thing also i think the fact is we um although we're still around and we've made lots of great music we at the time when we were having our attention got lots of attention should have been the time where we've been rehearsing and practicing and playing on the circuit to get really good but I don't resent any of that I'm just trying to provide context to myself probably for why um we never became the biggest band in the world but you know we were the biggest band in E5 for about 10 minutes in 2012 yeah, well, absolutely. That, you know, that, that debut album was, you know, it charted at number 12. It was f- full of hits. It, it did uh, did do really well. And you know, it took you around the world as well, right? It took you out to Asia and big gigs around the world. So it must have been, you know, pretty enthralling to, to go and yeah, tour Spectre. We would, we played, yeah, in Russia, Mexico, Japan, China. We would book to help launch Top Man in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia which we didn't know would involve a whole load of televised content, including us taking Malaysian competition winners around the first top man in Malaysia and helping them pick an outfit out. (laughs) I think some of these 
people weren't even sure what the competition they'd won was. <laughs> Obviously, there was the language barrier and then Malaysian TV presenters and camera crew following around as people came out of dressing rooms, like montage scenes in films with new outfits, and we had to give them the thumbs up or thumbs down. Um, there was a fight. We got to play Coachella in 2012, the first weekend that it became, the first time it became two weekends. So we got to play twice, you know, first on to not very many people, but that was the time of our lives. I remember we played in San Francisco between the two weekends and my friend was there, Sahil. We got chatting to a guy. The um, He got chatting to a guy who had a gun um, at the gig. Obviously, it was legal to carry guns there. So we were just like, wow, there's a guy with a gun at our gig. And he was asking him to show his license. And then our friend backstage was like, oh, do you mind if I take a look at the gun? And he was like, yeah, sure, man. He passes him the gun. And my friend who... God knows how wasted he was at the time. Turns around to all of us and goes, "Guess on the on the floor, motherfuckers, holding the gun." And this random San Francisco guy, who's the guy licensed to have a gun, like wrestles him to the floor, and the gun goes flying. I think the safety was on, but you know, <laughs> getting threatened with a gun backstage at your own gig—that's where you really feel like life is happening. <laughs> From the top man's of Kuala Lumpur to you know, um, backstage in the desert, but. No, there's definitely no complaints um, from us on that that um, point. And I, I'm, I, I think I'd always had some idea that maybe we would, the band might break up or something. There was, even in the title, Enjoy It While It Lasts, it was kind of a, oh, well, maybe this is, we're just one of these hype bands that's doomed to not exist for very long. Um, but then when Chris, the original guitarist, decided to leave the band in 2013 I was so annoyed with him because I think I'd kind of wanted to be if anyone was going to leave I, I wanted to or break up I wanted <laughs> to be me that I was like I, I'm going to keep the band going to spite you um to prove that this is something worth doing and it, it's almost turned into a kind of um not Shakespearean but some kind of uh Aesop's fable where we've had to keep the band going to kind of learn something, to learn the thing that we were meant to learn about the truth of being in a band. That, that having got into this band for all the wrong reasons and completely informed by the music industry idea of what success is and what it looks like and having a record deal and um, playing certain things and doing certain things and being in certain magazines. It's kind of like we've had to... We've kept it going to to try and remind ourselves and try and understand why that actually the the pure thing of going on stage and getting to play is actually an amazing thing. And I think it also got to the point in our lives where we were too old to start a new band. So we like we had to keep going. <laughs> and I'm thankful because along the way, you know, we ended up making a song like All the Sad Young Men on our second album. I'm so glad that we got to stay together to make that song. I'm, I'm so thankful for that. That song to me justifies the whole band's existence, you know. And later on, a song like Untitled in D, um, which we later found out was actually in the key of A, um, <laughs> again was one like, I'm so glad we got to exist that little bit longer. That was after we got dropped from our record um, label. And it was like, okay, well, do we keep going or do we 
end it. And I was at the time I was like, there's no shame in getting dropped. I'd always knew the stigma. And it's always amongst artists, you never want to get dropped by a record label because you feel like your career is over. But actually, anyone who cared about your band the day before you get dropped usually will still care about it the day after, except the people who are going to be paying for your recordings or music videos or whatever. But that was like, again, by this point, Spotify and everything was up and running in the early days of Spectre again without wanting to sound too much of a throwback 2012 with that first album we would we sold most of those on CD or iTunes downloads the idea of someone buying something on iTunes now is you would never never in a million years you'd be more likely to buy it on like a cassette tape than iTunes or or a colored vinyl but this was an era of selling CDs and downloads um so again, the industry's changed and, and kept changing so much, starting in an era in 2006 where we were having to sell seven inches and you'd, you'd be sending them to rough trade in boxes for them to sell. And then you'd call them up to ask how many you'd sold. You know, This was almost pre the very early days of people using email in their music careers. Um, so I don't know where I was going with that, but it's kind of, I think, yeah, kind of, Spectre kind of had two careers. I think we've had the the major label bit of it where we were lucky enough to have all this backing and support and made lots of great singles, if not necessarily great albums. But then since then, with the EPs and the compilation we did last year of EPs, nonfiction, you know, I think that has some of our best songs on it. And we went on a tour at the end of 2019 and that was one of the busiest tours we'd ever done seven years in. So we're very, we're very thankful without wanting to sound too much like a kind of hippie American. Um, I do feel blessed that if there are still people wanting to go and see live indie music in 2020 and 2021, we're lucky enough to get to play to some of them and hopefully bringing with us kind of, 15 years of uh miserable indie ups and downs with us yeah and as you say still going as we said at the top of the podcast still going because now or whenever uh, well we were expecting in october aren't we but it sounds like it's going to be a bit of delay on that so what's the latest when can people get their next fix of spectre well i think if this comes depending on when this podcast airs we'll probably announce that due to the vinyl delays of six weeks which would mean the album didn't come out till after our tour. We're going to put back both the album and the tour and hope that people will forgive us and still come to the tour in January. No one has anything to do in January, so I hope they will. The annoying <laughs> thing is people are doing dry January, so please allow yourself a night off to drink <laughs> um, at our gigs if you come. Um, and yeah, so we're gonna, but we're going to be releasing more music between now and the end of Christmas. Um, we've got some f- funny music videos coming, but we've got lots of music. So there's the album in January, but we've also got other singles that we recorded with the album at the beginning of the year, which we recorded with Rich Turvey, who does Blossoms and The Coral and is a good producer and responsible for kind of making a sound on this album a bit more like what we sound live because it got to the point where we're like oh we're actually better live than on record so we tried to make a record that sounds more human and more um live dare i say almost probably off 
a proper guitar album. I mean, proper in terms of it being the sound of a guitar, not proper in a kind of <laughs> lad rock way, but hopefully it's got something for the lads as well. Excellent. So, yeah, lots to look forward to. And, uh, yeah, me and Peter are hoping to get down to the Chef Bush Empire show. So we'll have to check the check the January dates and, and see if we can get down. 100%. I think that'll be Friday. The, it's not Friday the 13th. Friday the 14th of January. And that's our first time back at Shepherd's Bush Empire since 2012, which shows, you know, a stopped clock is right twice a day. <laughs> yeah, amazing. <laughs> well, we're going to head into the, the encore, Fred. And... Um, mentioned films a few a few times in, in this pod you know we mentioned uh home alone 2 and and the rock mm-hmm. right at the start you mentioned the great <laughs> rock and roll swindle and you know you've always struck me as a as a bit of a theatrical performer shall we say so mm-hmm. tell me this if if they were to make a movie of your life who, who's going to play fred mcpherson that is a brilliant question i would hope um though it would have to be done sooner rather than later rick moranis would be willing to come out of retirement <laughs> Um, if he's not going to do it for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, you know, for <laughs> he'll do it for um, the story of Fred McPherson's life. So, uh, second question, second question of the encore, Fred. Um, what was the best gig you did? Um, well, we could pick either here, really, Les Incompetence or uh, Spectre. What was the best gig you've done? That's a great question. The thing is, the best gig will probably be somewhere really boring. It'll be like, oh, when we, we played Newcastle Clooney in October 2014 or whatever, because those the points where it all really comes together are the the points, you know, usually when the cameras aren't necessarily rolling and no reviewers are there. But to me, it will be more, you know, the, the most interesting gig um rather than the most fun gig so or as in the most fun gig won't necessarily be the best gig so for example we played a festival on far to the west of in russia towards the border of ukraine on a bill where i think we were before scooter and less than jake and went on about um midday and said to the promoter you know we're worried i don't think anyone's going to be here and they said don't worry um homeless people are allowed in free um and which just gives a taste literally in like the russian desert um and to to me even though we probably only played to about 30 people the fact that we'd flown they'd flown us halfway around the world and this was just after the plane got shot down over Ukraine as well. So we were all really holding onto our seats. Um, you know, to me, it's it's ones like that, that are the, the best gig or, or when we played at a festival in Shanghai where, you know, for every five audience members, there was a, a policeman and an attack dog. Um, that those are what it's all about because that's the real life ex- experience. You know, it's, I love to play places in London and, and Oval Space in 2019, I think was one of our best gigs. But I like it when things get a little bit more fucked up. Mm-hmm. We once played a gig in, in Sweden where they said, at festival, you know, you have to play for an hour or your fee gets docked 
for every 10 minutes you don't play. Up to this point, we'd never played a gig more than 40 minutes. So we had to find 20 minutes of material between, you know, 4 p.m. and 7 p.m., which involved lots of kind of meandering interludes and slowing songs down to about a fourth of their tempo to try and make them fast. <laughs> awesome. Um, last up, Fred, last question of the podcast is for you to pick out the, the song you're proudest of from your back catalogue. Um, I love Les Inc. How It Went Wrong, but I think I touched on it before. The song I'm proudest of is All the Sad Young Men because I think that's one that if it was by another artist, I would love it. Most of our songs I always hear are that should be different or that should have changed or I'm not 100% happy with that. But that's one where the lyrics, the songwriting and the production, I'm happy with all of those things. And I think it was just, in a way, it was the song that most encapsulates and encapsulated the spirit of what we were and what we are trying to do almost to the extent that we probably should have given up after writing that song <laughs> no we're, we're definitely glad, glad you didn't fred um love the band and uh yeah as I say looking forward to seeing you uh, in, in january so thanks so much for coming on the podcast really enjoyed chatting to you given some you know really interesting uh, insight and reflections on on your your whole musical career and uh yeah we thoroughly enjoyed it so thanks very much amazing thank you save on auto insurance for driving safe with USAA SafePilot, you'll feel like a big deal. Even in a traffic jam. Save up to 30% with USAA SafePilot. Restrictions apply. 